0: Today, we're going to see what happened to Jesus after he actually delivered up his spirit. Some things happened to him that were so prophetic that John felt the need that, to say, I saw this with my own eyes and I testify to you, I'm telling you the truth. He felt he had to, he had to, he had to stand and, and just say, I'm telling you, I promise, I'm telling you the truth. Because what he saw was so important, so prophetic that it, was at, that, that, it, that it proved who Jesus was. And that's why Joseph of Arimathea, that's why Nicodemus turned. They saw it too. We're going to see it today. To understand the text today, we need to be Jewish. We need to, we need to go back. So I'm going to, I'll walk you through this so that you and I understand what we're seeing from their eyes. And then we're going to let it touch our hearts. Holy Spirit, come now. Open our ears. We've, we've come to listen to you. Open our eyes to see our Lord Jesus afresh. We want to love him. We want to trust him. We want to believe in him. We want to follow him. We want to see him. We pray for the grace O God to show us Christ. And we pray, Lord, we bring you soft hearts. We trust you. We believe in you. We yield to you. And Lord, so now take us and make us strong. Build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm starting in um, John 19, and I'll go down to uh, chapter 19, verse 31, down to 42. We pick up right after the Lord said, it is finished. He bowed his head and delivered up his spirit. Verse 31, then the Jews, meaning uh, the religious leaders, particularly the high priests here, Because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Would you say pierced his side with a spear? John says, and then we'd also say they did not break his legs. Let's say that. Then John feels the need to say this. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. See what I mean? He really. So that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Let's say that. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's say that. They shall look on him whom they pierced. I'll pick up. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and brought it in abounded in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the jews and now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid therefore because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was nearby they laid jesus there let's well one moment let me ask you a question There's something about human nature that if we, if we really believe something, we talk about it, isn't it? Think of this. What do you, what do you really believe in? I mean, let's get down to real pragmatics here. Uh, are, there, are there restaurants you li- really like? Some place you found and you think, this is just a great restaurant. You probably tell a lot of people about that restaurant. You talk about it. Uh, you, you, can have, uh, you can have a favorite car everybody in your mind ought to drive that kind of car i I am such a person and i have i have a favorite i will not mention Uh, but my children have to apologize each time they buy a car that's not that kind of car to me it's like okay i mean you had your chance uh you know whatever uh why 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 do i talk about it why because i I, i'm convinced in here it's a really good car kind of thing uh here's a funny example of it for me but if I believe something, it tends to come out of my mouth. I talk about it. I, I, I found a blender that I like, you know, and I make a smoothie about every morning. I, and, um, but somebody in the church told me about this blender, and, and they said, you need to see this video. And it's the owner or the guy who invented the blender, and he's, he's blending a baseball bat. And he's <laughs> he, serious. And then he, then he, then he blended a, 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 a golf club right on down the head and all. And I thought if it can blend a baseball bat and a golf club, who doesn't want that product, you know? So so I I am me, you know, mealy when I got one. Well, um, so I've used it now. I think I'm on like 2600 times, you know. Um it has a count. So, I was down last summer with uh, my son and Mary and I were down visiting Andrew in uh, Tempe and uh Phoenix area, and we, he took us to a, a department store and and uh, we were getting something and so I head over to the to the blenders you know to the and I'm looking at all of these, and, and uh, the, the salesman comes up and he's talking about blenders, and there's several, you know, a number of varieties, and he starts talking about this. I said, "Oh, no, 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 you don't want that one." And then I said, "Now, let me show you." And I start showing him. I said, "Do you see this here? And now look at this. You can hit it with a hammer. It's so, 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 and I, you know, hit it says, "So hit." And, you, and, 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 and uh, I go on and on and on. And by the time I was done, I sold the salesman that blender <laughs> And my, my son still laughs about that to this day. He says, you know, if you believe in something, you can sell it. You talk about it. Why? It's, it's, it's because it's good and you want to give something good to somebody else, right? So if we don't talk about it, it says something about what we believe. And we're going to watch two men today who go from... sort of believing, but staying quiet about their faith. And they have something happen that changes them to the point they cannot stay silent any longer. That's what you watch with Joseph of Arimathea. It's what you watch with Nicodemus. They can't stay silent any longer. They become fully convinced. Here we go. To someone who didn't know the Bible well, What happened to Jesus that afternoon would have seemed to be nothing more than a tragic series of events. That person would have seen only an innocent man being badly mistreated. But if someone did know the scriptures, he or she would have been shocked as they watched key prophecies being fulfilled in front of their eyes, especially the way Jesus' body was treated after he died. Certain things were done to him by people who had no idea of the spiritual meaning behind what they were doing. Things that God, through his prophets, had described in detail hundreds of years earlier. Unknowingly, those soldiers fulfilled two prophecies, which were such powerful testimonies about Jesus that John assumed there would be people who suspected that he'd put those events into his account, but that they hadn't really occurred. After all, John is the only one of the gospel writers who mentions them. Probably because neither Matthew, Peter. Peter is Mark's source. The gospel of Mark is based on, as far as everyone can tell, uh, Peter. Or whomever Luke interviewed. You recall, Luke says, "I, I interviewed eyewitnesses. So none of those had been close enough to the cross to see what John saw. So as soon as he finished describing what happened, he inserted these words. Now, this is my translation, but read this with me out loud if you would. And the one having seen these things has borne witness, and his witness is true. And that one knows that he speaks truly, so that you may also believe. For these things happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's saying that he saw the soldiers do those things with his own eyes, and if we trust his integrity as an apostle of Jesus Christ, we will believe him. Brothers and sisters, we have to believe something. Every person has to come to a place that you decide, this is what I will believe, because you can't prove anything. You can't even prove you exist. You know, there are whole schools of philosophy on this where people go, how do I prove if I really exist? So one, one poor man spent most, most of, much of his life trying to decide, did or did he not exist? Was he just a dream, in, you know, or, you know. And finally, he convinced himself that he existed because somebody was asking the question if he existed. Ha-ha, what a relief. If you start going on what, I'm only, I'm only the facts, man. You start just saying. Oh, I'm a, you prove it to me. And you get to a place, you'll get to a place. Where n- you're not sure of anything. And I'll tell you where that leads. Insanity. People who get into this kind of philosophy. At some point often kill themselves. And I won't go through a litany. I actually have one in my mind. Of people who kill themselves. As they got into this existentialism. And these kinds of things. You go far enough with that. You'll go crazy. Finally. Every one of us must decide, I believe this. And you'll do it by faith. What voice, what what book, what truth will you stand on and build your life on it? You have to have a foundation under your feet. Something has to be where you stand. What is yours? I have decided, for me, it is the Bible. I met, now, for me, it's a little bit how I came. I met the God of the Bible. I had heard the, some Bible stories, but I didn't know the Lord in a direct way. But I met him in power. And so then as I read his book, it's the same person I met. And as I watch him do these things, I think, I, he, he can do that. He, boy, I know, what he, I know his power. I've seen it. I've felt it. I, I, he's a living God. So I didn't have a problem. Somehow deciding, oh, there's miracles in here. I thought, well, I've already met him. So between meeting him and between the word of God over the, over the years, I have a foundation, and I start from here. Do you? Yes. This is, and I want you to see that that's, that's what you're seeing. John says to us, as, as our apostle, as, our, as someone who saw Jesus, he says, I am promise you, I am telling you the truth. I saw this with my eyes, and I'm telling you exactly what I saw. So that, what? You may believe. If I believe John, I believe that. And I do believe John. And I believe Peter, and I believe James, and I believe Luke. I believe these, these, these gospel writers. Do you? I think they're trustworthy. I think everything in their lives shows that. And I sure believe Jesus. John wasn't the only one that afternoon who saw those events and recognized the prophecies that were being fulfilled. Two of Israel's top religious leaders were also watching and understood the meaning of what they were seeing. They had memorized and studied the Bible since they were children. Let me stop here. You've you, you got to get a hold of this. Because this is like when I said you got to think Jewish. These men, since the age of about four, have been memorizing the Bible. By the time they're nine or ten, they have memorized the entire Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, probably chunks of whole Psalms. Uh, who, maybe, maybe Isaiah, uh, the prophet. Uh, they have, this is by memory. These men who are, uh, we're told of Joseph, he was a prominent uh, man. He's a Sanhedrin member. He's undoubtedly got nearly all of the Old Testament, if not all of it, memorized. So, so does Nicodemus. In fact, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he calls him, he says, so are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm saying? He didn't say a teacher of Israel. He said, are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, this Nicodemus is one of the most respected religious leaders in the nation. I want to tell you how, let let me give you an example of this. What what do you have memorized? What do you have memorized of the Bible? The Lord's Prayer? If I said, our Father, do you know what comes next? What? Easy, isn't it? If I said, um, the Lord is my shepherd. You know why? You've got it memorized. It's in there. I want you to think that way because these men standing there watching this begin to run right down a checklist in their mind as they're watching Jesus. They all of a sudden know what page they're on. They know what they're seeing. And they know what comes next. And they know why it's happening. The prophets tell them. And this is what amazes them. This is why John says, I am so telling you the truth. I'm I'm not making this up. This happened. Because if it happened, it, it proves it's a powerful testimony to Jesus. All right, let's go back here. They studied the Bible since they were children. So when they saw the soldiers shatter the legs of the other two criminals, but leave Jesus untouched, And then when one of the soldiers thrust a spear into Jesus' side, they could hear in their minds the same statements John quoted for us. Not a bone of him shall be broken, and they shall look upon him whom they pierced. If they had been unsure of Jesus before the crucifixion, after the soldiers finished their gory work, no doubt remained. And they knew what they had to do, and they knew they had to do it before the sun set. Joseph and Nicodemus did not come out uh, uh, and and do what they did out of of pity. They came out out of faith. The cross did not convince them uh, against Jesus. To men who knew their scripture, it proved he was the Messiah. It also answered things because there was confusion. Even at that point in time in Israel, I mean, you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We find that goes back to like 200 B.C. You, you, have, you have people saying there must be two messiahs here as they read the Old Testament. They go, you've got this glorious messiah who comes in power and, and, and delivers Israel uh, from its enemies and sets up this kingdom. But you also have this other messiah. He's clearly a, 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 the great servant of God, the great messiah. And he suffers and dies for us and takes these things. The, the, you know, all of, goes through it. So they concluded, maybe there's two of them. What we realize is they're both one. He comes twice. First time as our as our lamb, the next time as our Lord. He comes to die for our sins so that, he, that we don't perish. And then he comes again to gather us and rule forever. Hallelujah, that's our Lord. After John died... Just as God had used practical circumstances to cause Roman soldiers to fulfill an ancient Jewish prophecy which said that the executioners would divide one of Jesus' garments and cast lots for the other, God also used practical circumstances to set in motion a series of events which led to the fulfillment of two more prophecies. Now, what I mean by practical circumstances is uh, the, the soldiers... One of their remunerations, their pay for uh, their ugly work is they get the clothing of the poor victim that's being crucified. And so they took the outer robe and they ripped it into four pieces and gave each one a piece, which they would sell in the market, I gather. But the tunic. Now, the tunic was that white thing that Jeff had on. Did you see it? It's like a long. It's like a nightshirt. It's the undershirt that goes. It's the part, the base garment, long sleeves down to the ankles. Uh, it. This is this tunic. In Jesus' case, his had been woven uh, in one piece. In other words, somebody lovingly made it for him. Was it Mary? Was it who, 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 who made it? But somebody loved him and made that garment for him and presented So it's a valuable, beautiful, beautiful piece of work. So you know, let's not tear this thing. Uh, that loses its value. Let's, let's gamble for it. So some, they get out some dice or whatever, and, and they had it. Boy, in fact, all over when we go to Israel, these games on the, on, the, on the carved into the stone to this day. Uh, they, they, somehow they rolled it, and, Somebody, one of the four, we're told each one got a part, so one of the four got the tunic. That's all just circumstance, isn't it? Two, that, what, 2,000 years earlier? No, 1,000 years earlier, David says, they rent my garment, and they cast lots. How, it, isn't it God amazing? He, he can come into circumstances and just, touch something and it's effortless and it's now fulfilling his word they don't even know it it looks like circumstance well it's going to look like circumstance here but it's going to fulfill exactly what was prophesied jesus was crucified on a friday here comes the circumstance john calls it a day of preparation because the day before every sabbath is used for shopping, cooking, and other preparations so that no work would need to be done the following day. Does that do you follow what I just said? Yeah. Sabbath day is, is, of course, in, in Israel, it's a, is a Saturday from a Friday night, uh, Friday at sunset. The day starts, the, the, the Sabbath starts when you can look up in the sky and three, see three stars. Now, we would really have a difficult time here in... Uh, we would have to phone somebody to find out when a day started here. But there they also didn't see the sky. So you, you wait and you and as the sky gets darker and darker you go one star, two star, three stars, and it's now the next day. You you see that? All right, so they on that you, you what everybody's doing on that afternoon before is you're out shopping, you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're I suppose milking the cow. I mean you're doing everything you need to do so that if possible you do almost nothing. The next day, you eat the cold food, you are, you're resting on the Sabbath. So it's the day of preparation. But because that particular Sabbath was also the first day of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, it was also considered a Sabbath for that reason. You might say that day became a double Sabbath. So the Sabbath happened to be that year also the first day of, of unleavened bread. Let me just remind you, the first day is Passover. Uh, remembering when I put the blood on the doors and the angel of death passed over in, in, in Egypt. That first day is Passover. But beginning the next day, you, you have the first day, the feast of unleavened bread, which goes right back to back. So you end up really with eight days. An eight-day festival, which was called, for short, Passover. The whole eight days ends up being called Passover. That's why I want to place it and say the preparation of the Passover. That doesn't mean just that day. It means the whole, the the preparation day of that in that week. So you've got the Passover feast of unleavened bread. Well, the first day of unleavened bread is specifically stated. I gave you the reference to be a Sabbath. So not only is it the Sabbath, it's also the Sabbath of, of, of the first day. So it's a double Sabbath. John says for great was the day of that Sabbath. With twilight drawing near, and that special day about to begin, the high priest realized it would be a violation of the law to leave the victims hanging on the cross during that special day. So they asked Pilate to order his soldiers to break the legs of the crucified men so they would die quickly and their bodies could be removed and buried before sunset. As I understand it, when you're you're crucified, whether they're tied or nailed, you hang down and they would put a thing under your feet you know, so you could push back up because as, as you stretch, you can't breathe well. So you're having to constantly lift up and breathe and then let down. So if you break the legs, one, you can't lift up any longer and you, begin, you, you suffocate. But come on, any of us who've had, seen broken legs or had broken bones, you know one of the things that can happen is you throw an embolism. You throw a fat cell or whatever, into the system, into the brain, into the lungs, that'll kill you. Just the shock of it. They took a heavy mallet, forgive me, and just, you know, shattered those legs. That, just that'll kill you. So, however it did it, this was their uh, way of shortening it. Uh, Pilate gave the order, and the soldiers took a heavy, mallet and shattered the leg bones of the first man. And then they did the same to the man on the other side of Jesus. But when they approached Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead. So he did, they did not break his legs. Remember he delivered up his spirit when it was time. So he was gone before they got here. And that's also timely, isn't it? I think my, my guess is that he died about three in the afternoon, maybe somewhere between three and four. Um, because in the, in the temple, the afternoon offering of the lamb was being done. And the shofar would have been blown. You know, and, and you would have had this calling everybody to the afternoon prayer. And so I think as that, as that shofar went out, uh, it was time to go. Because he's the lamb of God. And so sunset, the three stars, is somewhere about probably that, that, this time of year over there. What would you say, 5.30, 6 o'clock, somewhere in there where you're seeing the first stars. So you've got some hours right there. He may have been there an hour uh, or so uh, before they finally come, but they find him dead. But one of the soldiers wanted there to be no doubt that Jesus was completely dead. So he took his spear and drove the blade into Jesus' side, likely angling it upward under his ribcage so that the blade would split his heart. Remember, Jesus is not way up there on a cross. He's probably, his feet are probably a foot off the ground or so. Uh, It's it's not a great high thing. And the the, the soldier could easily have just, just taken his spear and split his heart. John has just told us that Jesus' bones were not broken. But his side was pierced with a spear. Both of those facts have deep spiritual meaning to people who know the Bible. At Israel's first Passover in Egypt, God expressly forbade them to break the bones of the Passover lamb. In effect, the lamb was not a meal. This is important. It was a holy sacrifice, and therefore it was to be treated with respect. They were not to break any bone of it, but burn what remained the next morning. When you had a Passover lamb, this lamb was treated a very special way. This was not just, this wasn't dinner. You didn't just say, hey, we're having lamb for dinner. That's, that's not what you're doing. This, is, this lamb, first of all, is given the blood that's over the doorpost in the middle of your home that just saved your, your, your firstborn child. And so uh, you're, you're deeply grateful for that. And then you're to have it enough people, you're to invite people over if you don't have enough in your house. So you have maybe ten adults or so. You need enough people to eat the whole the whole lamb. It's to be completely eaten. You don't snack on it, you don't have a little bit of it. You do not leave it. So you eat, you eat all of it, and then the next morning you don't you don't throw it out, you don't crush it up, you burn it. Now that's what you did with the sacrifice in the tabernacle or in the in the in the temple. You burned it. Why? It's holy. It is a sacrifice. You are participating. You are taking uh, the, the, the lamb uh, as, a, as, a, as an act of worship. This isn't dinner. This is holy. Isn't that beautiful? And then the, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the sufferings of the Messiah, uh, that he would undergo as a sacrifice for our sins, specifically stated that he would be pierced through For our transgressions. 200 years later. The prophet Zechariah. Described the Messiah. At the end of the age. Coming at the end of the age. To deliver Jerusalem from the nations. Who were attacking it. In the midst of that description. He hears the Messiah. Declare that he will. Why don't you read this out loud with me. Pour out on the house of David. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Isn't that an amazing passage? It's still an amazing passage. Zechariah is is describing the, the coming of Messiah, At the end of time, at the end of the end of this age. Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. You have Armageddon, basically, you have all of these nations that have come against it. And then Messiah comes and he delivers the city. And it says, when he does, then 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 in the middle of that it says this, and the Messiah speaks. And Messiah speaks, and they will look on me, whom they have pierced. And that word pierced means rammed through with a spear or a sword. I mean, I actually give you the reference in Brown, Driver, and Briggs. It, that's really important. Pierced. Who have they pierced? What Messiah? Why would you pierce the Messiah? When did you pierce the Messiah? You can. But this hasn't happened yet, by the way. When he comes again, this will happen. They will look on him who they pierced, and they will mourn for him as a parent who's lost one of their their own babies. The mourning grief over what's happened to him. Wow. That was that was a very well-known promise and still is. The Hebrew word which is translated as pierce primarily means to run someone through with a lance or a sword. So, so for John to announce That both of these prophetic symbols happened to Jesus after he died is so spiritually significant that John testifies that he is telling us the truth. Then, so there would be no mistaking what he meant, John quotes from both passages. Does this make sense? All right, let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. Let's, Let's see it through his eyes. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. The very council that had condemned Jesus, but he had not supported their decision. Uh, Luke 23, 51. Uh, Luke tells us exactly that. He says, he says this, this Joseph was a prominent member of the, of the Sanhedrin. So you have a high, respected religious leader. And, it says in, and Luke says specifically, and he had not Supported their decision, you remember my what I think happened. I think Caiaphas had had a, had a, a gathering of, of like minded people uh, early in the morning before uh, morning before the sun rose, which is illegal. Uh, he held this this trial, this false trial in which by the time uh, the other members of the sanhedrin the the righteous ones got there, uh, it was basically a done decision i I don't think for a second, And well, it says that Joseph of Arimathea didn't agree with it. Nicodemus wouldn't have agreed with it. Gamaliel wouldn't agree with it. He was a, he was a great man. You, you had righteous people on that Sanhedrin. They aren't all scoundrels. But there was a core of scoundrels. And that's what ended up happening. And so here, here, is, here, here are two Sanhedrin members standing there watching him die. And checking off the prophecies and going, oh, my goodness. So he looks at, uh, he was a good and righteous man. And in his heart, he secretly believed in Jesus. All that is stated. But he had not had, had, not had the courage to announce his faith, faith publicly because he knew what the other religious leaders would do to him. He was from a very religiously conservative town near Lydda. That's over uh, near, near the coast. And personally believed that God would soon send the Messiah to rescue Israel. So he's a man who's been believing that Messiah would come. And waiting anxiously that Messiah would come and deliver Israel from its oppression. And he was also a wealthy man. And had carved a new tomb for his family. In a rock wall only a short distance away from the place where Jesus was crucified. Do you recall the pictures I showed you? Uh, I actually asked them if they'd booted up for this service, I just, because I just remembered it. Do we have those pictures right now? And I'm going to turn around and maybe spend over here. It's okay. there. This, this is a picture of what I believe is the, the skull. You see the eyes and the nose right over here? Uh, that goes clear back, as I said, to, uh, to easily the fifth century BC. This is not new. Uh, this is what was carved clear back from Tol- Solomon time forward to make a defensive uh, gap. Right here, you can see the shadows. This is the We're looking at this from the wall of Jerusalem, and this is in 1900. Now, what's important is, so I believe he's crucified right out here, near the highway here, so that you passers-by see this ugly thing. This is how the Romans did it. This is how they did it everywhere. They, they, you'd have a row. Can you imagine coming to town past a row of people dying in a crucified. Like, talk about disgusting. We, we have no idea what they lived through. See the wall over here? This little brown, uh, mud brick wall. That's the garden on the other side. Now the next picture is what's on the other side of that wall. This. This garden. This is 1898, this picture. The, this Right, this is the other side of that wall. This whole area is a garden. Off here to my right, not far, just a bit up and right over here, is a huge cistern, one of the largest water cisterns they've ever found. It goes clear back to this time. And here's the tomb. I think that's Joseph of Arimathea's. It was carved in there. I, the Lord hid this. So many of the of the of the really wonderful biblical sites have had. All sorts of churches and religious stuff put on them, and they're kind of ruined. So you go and go, huh. So actually, when I take it to Israel, I don't take you to many churches. I take you to about one, uh, just because you ought to see that one. And, but other than that, I try to find places where we can see it where, the way it was. I believe the Lord hid this one. You, can you see the track along the, here? That's where the stone would have rolled across that door. And uh, the, 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 the place where the body would have been laid is still there. All right, let's go back now. Imagine being Joseph of Arimathea. You're standing there watching this. And you've carved a family tomb right over there. Watching what happened to Jesus might have convinced someone who didn't know the Bible that Jesus was not the Messiah. But someone like Joseph knew exactly which prophecies were being fulfilled in front of his eyes. At some point, he must have realized that he was watching Isaiah's description of the Messiah's sufferings as if God were going down a checklist. And once he saw that, then he also knew why Jesus was suffering the way, was suffering that way. Isaiah had said it was for our transgressions that he was cut off out of the land of the living. So Jesus had died for him. At some point, they know where they are. We're in Isaiah 53. And remember what it says? He was uh, crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The the, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. What's the next? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. See, they're, they're tracking. Like I can memorize it. They got it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone from our own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, my goodness. This is it. Then the Lord says, if he will present himself as a guilt offering, this Messiah. He says, he says, uh, he said, even though this is being done to him and he was considered to be, uh, he should be buried with a common criminal, his grave will be with a rich man. I remember Joseph's rich. Okay, here we go. The next verse, in fact, his mind would have led on to the next verse. He'll be cut off out of the land of the living, Isaiah 53, 8. And it goes on to the next verse, and it would have said, and his grave, read this with me out loud. His grave was a sign with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He, Joseph of Arimathea, was rich, and he owned a brand new tomb not more than a hundred yards away. It would have been wonderful to watch that realization hit him. He was the rich man Isaiah had written about 750 years earlier. And then he knew exactly what he must do. He could hide no longer. He must openly declare his faith in Jesus he must, and he must do it by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus so he could bury it honorably in his own tomb. What a moment. You're standing there, you're watching it happen, and then you know Isaiah 53, 9. And his grave was with a rich man in his death, and you've just dug a new one over there. Wow. Nicodemus, thankfully, someone came to help Joseph. Another of Israel's great religious leaders had also seen what happened and knew that he couldn't hide any longer either. While Joseph went to Pilate, Nicodemus went somewhere and found nearly a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. It took a wheelbarrow. It had to. (laughs) Myrrh is a sweet smelling resin from a shrub that grows in Arabia and Africa. And aloes, the aloes he brought was either a succulent with healing properties or a soft, sweet-smelling wood from India, which was used in embalming. The fact that he brought such a large quantity of this mixture shows that he, too, intended to honor Jesus. Normally, only royalty would be buried so lavishly. John's tell, when, he said, when he tells us it's a, it was it a was hundred pounds of this stuff, That wasn't normally done. If you think that's a lot, it was a lot. We're going to bury him like a king. Nicodemus is pledging his faith. You're Messiah. I know who you are. And he gets a hundred pounds of this and brings it back to bury Israel's king. Burying Jesus The two men took that mangled body off the cross. That's just a horrible thought. Just the whole process. And then they may have washed it with water. I mentioned that there's a large cistern right there in that that garden. One of the largest they've ever found. There is still a large underground cistern in that garden. And after that, they wrapped the body with long strips of linen, placing the mixture of myrrh and aloes between the layers. That was the burial custom of the Jews. And when they were done, they laid the body on a stone shelf in Joseph's tomb and rolled a large round stone in front of the entrance. And then they must have hurried home before the Sabbath began. And by that act of devotion, both men publicly confessed their faith in Jesus and their lives would never again be the same. This was certainly done in public. Uh, Everyone sees this. The word is out, oh my goodness, look at those two Sanhedrin members. Boy, fully convinced. Today we watch two men hide their faith in Jesus until they became fully convinced that he was the promised Messiah. Once their hearts were sure, they, couldn't stay, they could stay silent no longer. Each man in his own beautiful way, announced that Jesus was his Lord and Savior. Knowing that confession would undoubtedly bring trouble. I think Joseph and Nicodemus taught us an important principle. If a person can stay silent about their faith, they don't really believe it yet. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us becomes too wonderful to hide. If there is a way to have eternal life, And we're convinced that we know that way. How could anyone not feel compelled to tell those they love? Or for that matter, those they hate? How could you be silent? How could we let people die? How could you let people go through life? If you know that you know that you know, he's real. This is is it. There is eternal life and there is a savior. How could I possibly be silent? I can't let you die without knowing that. It just can't happen. If I love you, if I have, if I have, a, if I have compassion. The, that truth will burn in our hearts every time we see someone who doesn't know it. To a heart full of faith, it feels terribly unfair to allow others to continue struggling through life without God's help or draw near to death without hope. Yes, the Lord cautions us to be wise in presenting our faith to others. There are times to speak and times to be silent. But when the heart is fully convinced, it will find a way. So where do we find such faith? Where do we, if, if we're not fully convinced, if it's been something we kind of believe these facts, you know, we're probably true. But it certainly hasn't welled up yet and become a thing that, like, I love Jeremiah's statement. He says, he says I, I tried to not speak your word, he says, but it just welled up in my body like a fire burning in my bones. <laughs> and he said, I, I was miserable till I spoke. I couldn't contain it. There's something about the truth of Jesus Christ, knowing him, knowing it's real, that's like that. Yes, we need to be thoughtful and kind. We need to let the Lord lead us. We don't just blast everybody. But if that faith is there, it will come out of the mouth. Boy, if I can sell somebody a a blender, (laughs) why would I be silent about eternal life? Why would I be silent about... The one that could help them as they're going through their agony. You know, just sheer compassion. Now, don't you feel this? Watching people without the Lord. After a while, it's not a, it's not a superiority. In fact, it's not superiority at all. You don't feel better than them. You just feel like, it's what do they say? One beggar telling another where they found bread. I found the answer. I found help. I found comfort. I found Him. How do I not tell people about that? In fact, that's, isn't that, isn't that, is that what your life is about? It's what I've chosen to make my life about. I found him and i got to tell others about the one I found. These two old men, before they were fully convinced, they were disciples, meaning they believed to a degree, they followed, but it hadn't impelled them outward. They, they didn't, they hid it. Their own, their own security, their own safety was more important still. And then when they saw this they thought oh he is the messiah how can we be ashamed of him knowing that this is just exactly what he was to do for us and then they had to come out and they did it so beautifully the lord will use each of us in our own ways how do you speak about him some of us some of us do acts of kindness some of us some of us teach some of us care for the elderly and the dying some of us care for children some of us it doesn't matter where God uses us it's how he uses it. but it, you and I will be impelled to share our Lord one way or another somebody came up to me last night and they've been giving uh, they've been reaching out to the homeless we have several number of you who do that and um, he said I've been trying to figure out what to give the homeless because he says if I give them this they sell it etc. like this. And he says, so I've come up with cliff bars. And he said, do you know what a cliff bar is? I said, I do know what a cliff bar is. Well, he, and what he's done is he's, he's put, he's got John 14 something, I think, on the front. And he sticks it on a cliff bar and he's giving it out to the poor. He can't help himself. Why does he do that? Does he have anything else to do? And instead, he's out talking to people on the street about Jesus. Why? Not because he has to. He's not earned anything. He's going to heaven. This isn't earning anything. It's the love of God. It's the faith. When faith boils up like that. So where, did, so where did Joseph and Nicodemus get it? It started with the word of God. When we know the word. When we see the promises of God. And we keep watching. We'll see those promises fulfilled. When you watch in faith. But if you don't know the word at all. You're left not knowing what you're seeing. Lots of people watched but didn't know they were seeing incredible signs. But they didn't know the Bible. So they wouldn't have known. they just see a guy getting killed. But a person with the eyes of the word, through the word of God. So God gives you and promises and me promises. If we begin to get this in our hearts as we walk with him, we'll see him fulfill in front of our eyes his promises. And that's where living faith comes. You begin to stand on one of his truths. You begin to trust him. And then you see him bring this to pass in your life. And you go, oh, he's real. He's real. And then you can't be, you can't be silent. One way or another, you've got to tell people about your Jesus. Lord, we love you with all our hearts. We watch these two, these two leaders of Israel love you with all their hearts and we would follow right behind them fully convinced you are the lord and savior jesus we just confess it today we can't watch that horrible and beautiful act of your dying and not say we believe in you you are the savior you all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to our own way but our father laid on you the iniquity of us all. Lord Jesus, we believe. If you believe that, just say, Lord, I believe. You died for me. You bore my iniquities. You carried my sorrows. The chastening for my well-being fell on you. And by your scourging, I am healed. We confess that, our Father. In Jesus' powerful name. Thanks for listening If you like this podcast Please click the like button Subscribe and share it with a friend For more information Just head to our website lifelessonspublishing.com That's lifelessonspublishing.com There you'll be able to order Many of the books Pastor Steve has written